As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus told them to tell no one what they had seen until Jesus had risen from the dead. I'm wondering how hard that really was because this is such a strange story. How can you even begin to talk about this transfiguration of Jesus? It has baffled scholars for years what exactly is going on here. Some say that it's a misplaced post-resurrection story that somebody confused in the paperwork on the desk when they were putting the book of Mark together and so it ended up here in the middle of the gospel. It's such a strange story. Jesus up on a high mountain retreat with his three closest disciples and and out of nowhere he just starts glowing. And then two dead heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, the lawgiver and this quintessential prophet, show up and start having a quiet chat with Jesus. Peter, Peter decides, well, hey, let's just build some tents for everyone because why not, right? And then if it wasn't strange enough already, a cloud begins to envelop the mountain and a voice comes from the cloud. This is my son in James Earl Jones-like sound. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. What? A strange story, and yet it is a story that begins so ordinarily. Six days later, that is Mark's dramatic lead into this transfiguration event. Now, were I writing the story, telling it to readers, I would have started now, now I know. A lot of weird stuff has happened with Jesus up to this point, but brace yourselves, you're never going to believe what happens next. Or at the very least, something like, just get ready, it's getting weird. But no, not Mark. Six days later, he says, that's his intro. Such an unusually specific amount of days, just right there. Six days after the last thing that happened, happened. In the middle of their ordinary life, while on the journey from here to there, suddenly, without warning, transfiguration. Mark says rather nonchalantly, and then he was transfigured, as if transfiguration happens every six day or so. Six days later, in the carpool lane, while picking up the kids from school, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Six days later, while in line at the Magerite, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Six days later, while sitting in church, right in the middle of the sermon, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Six days later, could have been any week, really, right in the midst of ordinary life, transfiguration. And Mark acts as if this sort of thing, well, it happens all the time. And you know, maybe, maybe he has a point. Now, we don't start glowing in the middle of an ordinary week. At least I don't. I don't know about you. But we know how it feels when in the midst of ordinariness, the facade falls off. And suddenly we are transfigured before everyone's eyes. And everyone can see who we really are. While walking along the street, you pass a group of people who by all measurements are much cooler than you ever hoped to be. And in the moment that you're actually pulling it off and you're about to give that nod to let them know, yeah, I'm cool too, that's when you trip and face plant on the sidewalk. The facade is gone, and there you are, transfigured in all your clumsy dorkiness. 
You make good grades, excel at work, overachieve at everything, and then someone just says something negative, and in an instant, you're transfigured back into that small child who, no matter what you did, no matter how good you were, never could please your parents. To everyone else, friends, family, you were the perfect couple, so deeply in love, and now, now you feel so exposed, transfigured before, your, before their eyes. How did this happen to you? You were the model of faith. People looked up to you because of your faith. But life rattled you. Grief hit harder than you ever thought it would. You are transfigured, your soul so bare and empty, your faith barely holding under the weight of doubt. Now, when Jesus' facade falls off, he starts glowing with heavenly brightness because that's what he really is on the inside. When the facades we wear fall away, everyone can see what we've been hiding, our true self with all its mess and insecurity. No one wants to build a tent on this mountain. Instead, like Adam and Eve in the garden, we want to run and hide, flee from what we're hiding. Now, of course, if we were honest this morning, transfiguration, well, it's not always bad, is it? There are those moments that stick with us, the bad moments when what we're hiding is exposed. But those aren't the only types of transfiguration we experience. Sometimes out of nowhere, there's this burst of genius and even we are impressed with what we came up with. Sometimes sickness comes and we respond with grace and courage surprising ourselves. Sometimes we think we will break underneath all the pressure and instead we just somehow keep going and accomplish what we never thought was possible. Sometimes our insecurities are exposed and instead of running away, those closest to us come closer, surrounding us with their unconditional love. So which is it? What are we hiding? What's the real us? When our veils are pulled back, the facade drops, are we that weak, insecure, unworthy child? Or are we the surprisingly resilient, stronger than expected and perfect, but good and getting better person? Now, fans of the Harry Potter books and movies might have encountered this word before, transfiguration. I'm told it's one of the more popular courses at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Now, I haven't read the books, but we've been watching the movies with our kids. They're all available on Blu-ray at the Norwalk Easter Public Library, by the way. You may remember that scene in the first movie, The Sorcerer's Stone, when the students are all arriving, many of them for the first time at Hogwarts, and they're gathered excitedly together in the Great Hall, ready to begin this new mountaintop experience. And Hermione Granger, she's more eager than most, and strikes up a conversation with one of her older classmates. She says, I I do hope they start classes right away. There's so much to learn. I'm particularly interested in transfiguration. You know, turning something into something else, of course, it's supposed to be very difficult. The older classmate reassures her, well, you'll you'll be starting small, just turning matches into needles, that sort of thing. Later, we get to visit one of these uh, transfiguration classes with Professor McGonagall. On the first day of class, she demonstrates to to the students this craft by turning a desk into a, you know, you read, into a pig, right? 
She says, transfiguration is some of the most complex and dangerous magic you will ever learn at Hogwarts. Now, throughout the series, you see this kind of stuff happening. People uh, you think were rats are actually people in disguise. They turn people into dogs. One guy becomes an armchair and all of a sudden stands up and you never knew he was there. Sometimes transfiguration is done as a punishment, you know, turning someone into a newt. Or sometimes it's done in order to survive, to become a fish so you can breathe underwater. Magic, used to become something that you are not, something that they are not. I can see why the students were so eager to learn how to do transfiguration. Because that's what we want to do more than anything, isn't it? To become something we are not, to learn this special transfiguring magic, whether by dress and extreme makeovers or through this thing we call Christianity. We're always trying to hide what we are in hopes that we can transform into what we are not. But does this Harry Potter world get transfiguration right? Is that what's going on? In Mark. Now, this week is Ash Wednesday, as we mentioned, the beginning of the season of Lent. Lent, more than any other time of year, forces us to face our inner selves. The story of Jesus' transfiguration always comes up on this Sunday, the Sunday before Lent. If you ever notice that a preacher doesn't preach on the transfiguration before Lent, it's because we're so tired of this story, because it comes up every year without fail. But it is a story that kind of gives a picture of what's ahead, of Lent, the season where we focus on what we are, but hope to become something different. When Jesus transfigures, however, he doesn't become something different like in the Harry Potter books, changing a man into a rat. Jesus really, well, he doesn't change at all, does he? He was transfigured into what he really was glowing in all the glory of his divinity, and the disciples' eyes are finally open to see what Jesus is in all his true glory. And we often treat our faith as if it is some magical transformation spell. If we pray enough, do enough good things, go to church, we can somehow magically transform into the Christ-like person we hope to be. But it isn't about becoming what we are not. That's not transfiguration. It's about becoming what we really are. Because that's what happens to Christ. On the mountain of transfiguration, the veil is pulled down and we see his true self. God spoke, this, this is my beloved son. And so it is with us. When the facades we wear are pulled back, when we stop pretending to be better than we are, we think that all there is is mess. That's what we're hiding. All our insecurities, that this is the real us. So we wear the mask. But you, me, all of us, that is not what's underneath. What's underneath, maybe deep down because we're hiding so much, is that we are created in the image of God. Divinity is what's inside of all of us, just like Christ. But we cover it up with all this mess, thinking that that's the real us. Transfiguration, that's about pulling the facade off and pulling the divinity within us, outside of us. There's this great poem by Gerald Manley Hopkins. He wrote about transfiguration. The poet 
The poem is called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. Follow me if you can in the poetic words. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bells, bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing, every person, does one thing and the same. We deal out what inside of us dwells. Ourselves goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, and for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God, God's eye he is. Christ, that's what we are in God's eye, for Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Act in God's eye what in God's eye you are. Or in other words, you are my beloved. This is who you are. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Christ in you and me, the Father's face on our face, the poet says. This is who we are. May our eyes be transfigured to see this truth, that the divinity that is endures is our inner self. May, we, may, it bust, may it burst forth from within us and catch the whole world on fire with the glory of God. Amen. And now, now we will sing number 586. Open my eyes that I may see as we prepare to come before Christ's table of love. Ah uh -huh. 